following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Um, the Gospel reading today, we're doing that first, is um, John chapter 20, verses 19 to the end, and this can be found on page 1089 in your church Bibles, page 1089. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hands and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The second reading is from Acts 5, um, uh, verses 27 to 32, and this can be found on page um, 1097 of the Bible, Church Bibles, page 1097. The apostles were brought in 
and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds to receive from your holy word this morning. Amen. In the Gospel according to John, disclaimer, other Gospels are available, but I'm just going to stick to John today. In the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, Jesus is back from the dead, and he has about one and a half chapters left in which to get a few things done, a few post-resurrection things. New heavens and new earth things. Life in all its abundance things. Imagine you were Jesus. Which things would be top of your list? I'm tempted to say break into small groups and discuss that with the person next to you. It turns out that the one that will take up most space in Jesus' list of resurrected life things to do is to have breakfast on the beach with the disciples who are playing the role of weary fishermen. We'll get to that next week. We already celebrated resurrection breakfast, some of us, last week at the Premier Inn. I think there were well over 153 different kinds of breakfast food on offer then although there is no actual record of Jesus using a cappuccino machine on the beach that day. But we will come to breakfast in good time. In the second half of John chapter 20, which we read today, there are four or five things that Jesus does that John describes, and they circle around a couple of core issues. I wonder if you can guess what they are. Let's think. Hoped for Messiah dies. Hoped for Messiah mysteriously vacates the tomb and starts to be seen by witnesses that we sort of trust, more or less, though it was, you know, very early in the morning. And Peter does get excited. And as for Mary Magdalene, well, anyway, hoped for Messiah is on the loose. And no one really knows, A, what is going on, 
or b what it all means if it is indeed true and there you have it those are the two things that jesus needs to sort out with the disciples at the beginning of this new post-resurrection age a what is going on and b what does it actually mean if indeed it is really happening and he is back from the dead that i think drives the agenda underlying this sequence of short reports that john offers of the extraordinary first few post-resurrection days with jesus and the disciples look through them with me john 20 verses 19 to 20 jesus shows the disciples his hands and side and we read the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the lord so that's a what is going on jesus offers the disciples evidence that he is back from the dead or as i would prefer to put it that he has gone through death and come out the other side in new life he is not just resuscitated but hallelujah he is risen did you miss that cue hallelujah he is risen hallelujah a couple of details on this point of what is going on john begins by saying that the disciples were locked away in fear which tells us amongst other things that on day one the resurrection is not self-abundantly clear in its significance or implications and then quote jesus came and stood among them which rather sounds like he has mysteriously appeared in a locked room aha think the suspiciously inclined told you so he's a ghost that's what it means that he's back from the dead and now he can float through walls well no this is not what john thinks and in due course i don't think it's what any of the disciples think and i wonder if it's in part to prove this point that jesus spends much of chapter 21 as i mentioned having breakfast with the disciples since one thing ghosts do not do at least as far as i recall is eat cooked fish you need a physical body to do that so to be clear jesus has a new life physical resurrection body and is back in the old life physical 3d world of rooms and locked doors and then he comes into the locked room and stands among them this is still verse 19. i wonder if the best way of understanding this is to say that this new new life post-resurrection body is in some sense not less real than our normal 3d physical world but rather it is more real so vibrantly alive that it turns out that locked doors cannot stand in its way i don't want to start a denomination on this and john doesn't dwell on it but it is interesting to wonder if post-resurrection reality is rather more solid and substantial than pre-resurrection reality i'll just leave it as a suggestion a second detail while we're still on this point of a what is going on is to note that jesus showing the disciples his scars 
demonstrates to them that he is indeed their Lord, verse 20. Now, I think John is using a bit of benefit of hindsight here. I suspect the disciples came to see that it really was Jesus as he showed them his wounds, and then in due course, though probably very quickly, came to see that Jesus really was the Lord, and that's what John is summarizing here. But the first step, verse 20 again, was to see the physical evidence. Well and good, we may think, and all right for them. But what about us? We do not get to see the physical evidence. All we have is John's gospel. But John sees this objection coming. And that is why, among other reasons, the passage goes on from verse 24 onwards to tell us the story of Thomas, who he writes was also known as Didymus, though he's probably already pushing against the tide, because, of course, what Thomas is most assuredly also known as is Doubting Thomas which is how the NIV and most other translations read in verse 27, with Jesus saying, stop doubting and believe. It's a bit unfair, since what John actually writes is closer to, stop being unbelieving and be one who believes. The issue is sort of doubt, but it's actually, more precisely, what sort of evidence do you need to believe? Now, Thomas, let's call him unbelieving but then believing Thomas. That's never going to catch on, is it? Uh, he was not with the disciples back in verse 20 when they saw Jesus' hand and side. So Jesus here in verse 27, on a later appearance, makes a specific invitation to Thomas to touch the marks on his hands and side. And Thomas not only moves from unbelief to belief, but he proclaims one of the strongest and most remarkable things that the New Testament ever says about who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. Benefit of hindsight or not, that is a stunning acclamation of the identity of Jesus. I'll come back to that in a minute. But what I think is happening here is not... If you missed out on seeing the physical evidence of Jesus, that's okay, because he'll come and make another appearance just to convince you. But instead, it's something more like this. Thomas could have believed on the testimony of the other disciples, but he did not. And so Jesus makes this extra appearance to him. However, can you see that this could be an everlasting problem. What about the next person who doesn't believe the testimony of the disciples and Thomas too? Will Jesus now have to make another appearance and so on? So in fact, the real point of this double story in John 20, the disciples seeing Jesus' hands and side and then Thomas seeing Jesus' hands and side, is that we are not going to get into a situation where everyone who ever asks for proof gets a here is the physical evidence demonstration. Because actually, where Thomas went wrong was in not accepting the testimony of those who went before him. 
which is part of what is going on all over these final sections of the gospel. We weren't there, you and me. And that's okay, because having John's gospel is good enough. And of course, Matthew, Mark and Luke too, but if you recall, I am sticking to John today. Come the end of the chapter, John's version of this argument is, I could keep writing these books about Jesus forever, and I still wouldn't cover everything. So you're, I'm paraphrasing here, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. And all of this, all of John's gospel, is written to help us believe. Whether that verse is in particular about starting to believe, or strengthening the belief, that we already have. It could be either or both. So all of that is A, what is going on. Jesus is indeed really and truly back from the dead. It's happened and it's happening and we need to get on board by the simple expedient of joining in with those who have gone before us and who are passing this testimony down to us. So what about B? What does it all mean if the testimony of Jesus' resurrection appearances is indeed true? I'll be brief because in an important sense, I've already given away the conclusion here in the words of Thomas. The other theme that runs through these parts of chapter 20, most simply, concerns what this resurrection reveals about Jesus' identity. And what it reveals is that he is God, to put it as bluntly as Thomas does. Verse 21 says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And this is then explored in two startling ways. First, verse 22, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. This appears to be John's version of the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. But remember, I'm sticking with John today, and other Gospels, in this case Luke, are available. But the important thing here is that only God can pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is Jesus doing? Pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Conclusion, who is Jesus? He is our Lord and our God. And then again, in verse 23, he tells the disciples that they can forgive sins, indeed that sins are only forgiven if they do so. Note the passive way he expresses it. Their sins are forgiven, their sins are not forgiven. Most people think that is a way of referring to God's action. It's a kind of divine, passive verb. Or in other words, God forgives those who the disciples forgive, and not if they don't. And this again is getting at the issue that Jesus will not always be walking the earth to do this for us. So it has to be passed down in a tradition that keeps it alive. But let's not miss the big idea here. Only God can forgive sins. And who is it here who is forgiving sins and passing on the authority to do so? It's Jesus. And then 
It's us forgiving sins, which does make our actions of forgiveness truly important in our Christian lives, of course. Conclusion, once again, who is Jesus then? He is our Lord and our God. Cue the story about Thomas, unbelieving but then believing Thomas, who speaks for us, we now realize, as he says, my Lord and my God. And cue the words of Jesus in verse 29, wrapping this up. Thomas saw me and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, which includes dot, 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 you and me, all of us here at St. Nick's today. Indeed, down through the centuries at St. Nick's and in every other church in the world ever since this was written. John hopes, I am sure, that what he has written will be enough to persuade us. Though wearily, he probably accepts that some people will say, no, I need extra proof, extra physical evidence. I want to be like Thomas. But then come those final verses of the chapter where John basically says, I know, and I could write forever. And I still wouldn't persuade you if you weren't willing to accept the testimony in the first place. But if you do, well, you'll have life. Life in all its fullness, as he expresses it earlier in the book. So what I've tried to do today is to help us to see what John is getting at in this post-resurrection part of his gospel. A, what is going on? Answer, Jesus really is back from the dead, or arguably has gone beyond death and out the other side into new life. B, what does it all actually mean if it is true? Answer, Jesus is our Lord and our God. I like how Thomas, the slowest one to grasp A, gets to be the first one to put into words B. John knew what he was doing. Or more to the point, John knew what Jesus was doing. In case anyone is left asking, well, okay, so Christ is risen. Hallelujah. And okay, so Jesus is revealed to be God, but what does that have to do with me? Then the answer to that, I suppose, is hinted at in the idea of being sent out like the Father sent the Son and in forgiving sins as Jesus commissions the disciples to do. And well, we are now into the bit that comes next. Breakfast on the beach and all that that involves. So you will have to come back next week. As indeed, the people of God have been doing every week for 2000 years, ever since we realized that we are invited to join in this story. And this story never ends. So then, let us rejoice. 
Let us worship, let us pray, praise, and live it out together. We have it on the testimony of the earliest disciples. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk. Thank you.